Well, good morning again. We want to dismiss our kids for Kids Quest this time, so kids, you're welcome to go. so thankful that as you have given us an incredible opportunity to come together to worship you, to hear you speak to us in our lives, our hearts, our souls. Lord, as we hear your word today, I pray that we would receive it. I pray, Lord, that you would use it to change our lives. What you have to say to us today is not easy very difficult and can be hard hitting but Father you do not leave us in a place of brokenness where you find us but you offer us hope and new life and forgiveness but we'll never understand that hope that new life that forgiveness until we understand the depth of our own brokenness and our need for you Lord, as we talk about that brokenness today and you share with us through your word, I pray, Lord, that our, our hope would be in you. We'd find healing and strength and grace and mercy in you. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. There is a popular belief today that is pervasive in our culture, in our society, in our world, that says this, that people at their core are basically good. And we have counselors, we have educators, we have psychologists, and some religious people so-called that are constantly reinforcing this idea that people really are basically good. But I have one question. If people are so good, then why is the world so bad? Somebody's not telling the truth. The Bible says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7 verse 18, he said, nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. Isaiah chapter 66, 64 verse 6, Isaiah said, we are all infected and impure with sin. If we really are so good, then why is the world so bad? One of my favorite stories I suspect that it's true, is about a Dr. Howard who was from Australia. He spoke powerfully and unapologetically on the topic of sin. And when he finished, he went back to a study. One of the church leaders followed him to the study. And he walked into the study and he said, Dr. Howard, Dr. Howard, you cannot speak so candidly about sin like that. We don't want you to speak 
about man's fallenness and corruption and guilt so clearly. Think about the boys and the girls, our children. If you talk so plainly about sin, they're going to want to sin, become sinners even more. Apparently, Dr. Howard is a very wise man. He reached up behind his desk on a shelf and pulled down a little bottle. He said, do you see the label on this bottle? It says strychnine. And underneath that label, in bold red letters, is the word poison. Now I want you to know what you're suggesting that I do is change the label on this bottle, maybe put the essence of peppermint on it. And what would happen if I did that, he said. Someone would see that, they wouldn't understand it, they may take it and very possibly lose their lives. Do you understand what you're saying? The more harmless you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. So true, isn't it? So true. You know what I find is most of us don't have a problem admitting that, that we have sin in our lives, that we're sinners, or that sin even exists. Here's where the problem is, is that most of us don't take sin seriously enough. We're too nonchalant about it. We don't understand how serious sin really is. One of the reasons I so appreciate God's word is because he tells us like it is. And the Bible tells us what we already know about sin, but we don't want to admit. We are often like the man who knows there is something terribly wrong going on inside of him. But he doesn't want to admit it. And he's not about to go to the doctor. And so he wakes up every day knowing there's something not right. Something is seriously wrong. But he pushes it out of his thoughts. He goes on about his day. He ignores it. And he says, you know what? This is not that serious. It's going to go away. If I just ignore it, it'll go away. And he thinks to himself, now if I go to the doctor, that's going to take time. And definitely going to take money. Neither of which do I have. And anyhow, when did ever going to the doctor result in good news? So he says to himself, you know, I'm just going to ignore this. It's going to go away. And he ignores his condition and he avoids the doctor. But all he can imagine is that going to the doctor will result in bad news. He doesn't think that going to the same doctor may very well result in the good news he does need to hear as well. This morning as we open God's word, it's going to be as though we're going to the doctor. And you probably won't like what you're going to hear. What I'm going to talk about is very unpopular. In fact, in most circles, it is highly offensive. In fact, as you sit there this morning, you may feel like if I had rotten tomatoes, I'd throw them at you. And you may be offended. But I prayed this morning that God would cement your feet to the ground. That no matter how offended you are, you would stay right where you're at. Because you see, going to God is like going to the doctor. And you may not hear the news you want to hear, but you need to hear it. But that same doctor who's going to give you the bad news is also the same doctor who can give you the good news that you do need to hear. So this morning we're going to hear some bad news. Now we're going to hear some good news. And you may be offended. You may be insulted. That's because the message is hitting home. But I want you to bear with me. And I want you to remember, these are not my words. These are God's words to you and to me. 
So this morning I want us to open to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 9 through 20. And I'm going to read for you this section of verses. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. It's a message that God is speaking to you and to me and to all of humanity. Listen to what he says. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat has become an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Apostle Paul is not going to hold any words back. He is coming at us with the full force of God's word. And he's going to tell us that we are all sinners, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're moral or immoral, we're all accountable before the God, before the God who made us. And we're all guilty of sin by God's charge. So what Paul's going to do in these verses is he's going to show us or expose the dark side of our humanity. Every single one of us have a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde lurking inside of us. All of us have a dark side. And we don't want anybody to know, but you do. And so Paul exposes that dark side in these verses. And he's talking about the nature of all mankind. First of all, he's going to talk about the charge of our sin. Then he's going to talk about the conduct of our sin and then the consequence of it. So first of all, the charge of our sin, verses 9 through 12, he says, what then? Are we better than they? He's comparing himself with the, the Jews with other Gentiles. The Jews always thought that they were ahead of everybody else because after all, they were Jewish. And Paul levels the playing field. He says, listen, we're not any better than anyone. Not at all, he says. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. And there is none who does good. There is not even one. So Paul wraps up all humanity in one lump sum. And he says, listen, we are all under sin. It doesn't matter who you are. You're under sin. Notice how many times he used the word none. Four times. Not even one. He uses twice. All twice. Meaning there are zero exceptions. We're all under sin. We're all charged with sin before God. 
So let me ask you, what does it mean that if we're all under sin, what does it mean to be under sin? It means to be under the power, the authority, the domination of sin. Now Paul does something very interesting here. He changes from sins plural to sin singular. He's talking the power of sin as a whole. And he says we're all under this power. To be under something means simply to be under the control or the authority of something. So Paul uses that same idea in Galatians chapter 3, verse 25. He says the nation of Israel was under the law, like a schoolboy under a schoolmaster. He uses the same idea again in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. He says slaves are under the domination or the control of the slave owner. And so now he says that we are all under sin. What does that mean? He's saying this, that we are all dominated by a fundamentally evil dynamic, a cruel tyrant who has imprisoned humanity in guilt and judgment. Let me illustrate by what I'm saying here. Not long ago, somebody gave me a book. Its title was Hell, a Guide. Now, when somebody gives you a book, a guide to hell, it makes you wonder, why are they giving this to me? Are they saying something? The book itself is rather catchy. It's written by Anthony DeStefano. And up to this point, as I've read through it, he does a solid job talking about a biblical picture of what hell is like. In the very first chapter, he says this, the starting point of our trip and he says to his readers, he says, when you begin to talk about hell, the first place you have to begin to talk about hell is not hell itself, but rather, he says, the state of our own souls. To understand hell, you must first connect it with evil. Because hell is the final destination of evil people, he says. No reasonable person denies the existence of evil. The great masses of humanity, he writes, have always known Evil exists all around us, even inside us. And there are no words to adequately describe how unbelievably vicious, violent, and twisted, and abominable it can be. We see it both in the ancient world and in the modern world. In fact, if we thought evil existed in the ancient world more than it does in the modern world, we'd better think again. The most monstrous evil the world has ever seen taken place has been in recent times, in civilized times. Between the years 1900 and 2020, more than 150 million people were brutally butchered by totalitarian dictators and their regimes. The 20th century, the 21st century, were centuries that revealed that all type of things are not getting better, but in fact getting worse. Man is not evolving, man is devolving. De Stefano closes his chapter saying this, To understand the evil monsters who inhabit the bowels of hell, you must first get in touch with the evil monsters inside your soul. He took the words right out of the Apostle Paul's mouth. We are all under sin. And that's exactly what Paul meant. That there is an evil that dwells within us. Paul said in Romans 7.18, There is nothing good that dwells in me that is my flesh. De Stefano goes on, he says, let's be honest. All of us know what it means to be dominated by evil. Could be outbursts of raging anger. 
consuming bitterness, lapses into sexual sins, drinking binges, bouts of gluttony, lying, selfishness. De Stefano turns on the searchlight of honesty inside of each one of us, saying, think about how many times you've indulged in this behavior. Think of the times you reveled in it. Think about how many times you resolved to do better or to change. And yet, the second you encountered the tiniest temptation, you slithered back into the mud. Paul says, without exception, all of us are under the cruel, inescapable, dominating power of sin. But Paul is not making this charge on his own. He is, in fact, saying this is what God is saying, the maker of all of us, about all humanity, that we're all under sin. In verses 10 through 18, he pulls from the Old Testament a rabbinical form of teaching called karaz, which literally means stringing together pearls. And he's going to string together seven Old Testament quotes, and they're like a topical sermon on sin. And he's going to explain what God's charge of sin against is us, what God's charge is against, our, against us in sin. In fact, he gives 14 different indictments in these verses against mankind. And to break it down, this message is very simple. He's going to talk about the character of sin, which we're talking about right now in verses 10 through 12. Then he's going to talk about the conduct of sin, verses 13 through 17. And then in verse 18, one part there, he's going to talk about the cause of sin. In verses 19 through 20, he's going to talk about the consequence of sin. So right now we're talking about the character of sin. And Paul says, there is none who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside, and together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. God says, this is the character of your sin. This is the dark side of who you are. This is what, this is what lurks inside of you and controls you in your life. Notice how absolute Paul is. He doesn't say, you know, most people don't seek God. Uh, most people don't do good. But he says, none of us seeks God. None of us does what is good. Now, the moment I say that, you're thinking, wait now, wait now. I do good. I'm not an unrighteous person. That's offensive to say. But you see, the problem is you're measuring your goodness, you're measuring your righteousness, you're measuring your character by yourself or by others. The difference is that God is saying, I'm measuring goodness and righteousness not by fallen mankind, but, my, but by my perfect character. God is perfectly good. God is perfectly righteous. Stuart Briscoe, in his commentary on Romans, likens God's righteousness like the one magnetic true north. He says, in the same way there, is, there can only be one magnetic north, and that all other points of the compass find their identity in relationship to the north, so righteousness is found solely in the character of God. There are people who are heading south from God's north, and other people stray from the north in as many directions as there are points of the compass. Boy, I like what he says. There are a lot of people in their life that are saying, you know, I'm going north, but they're not true north. They may be north or just south of north or just west of north or east of north. 
but they're not truly north. In fact, the Bible tells us that no one truly seeks God. No one is truly righteous. Can I ask you a question? Does that offend you? Because the reality is that there is none of us that is righteous. Not one of us that does right. And what Paul is saying here is this, is that not one of us gets it right every single time. I want you to do something. This may be a little humbling, but you just said it's not a problem for you. I saw a number of heads say, yep, you're right. So I want you to do a little exercise. Let's just put this to the test. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, you know what? I'm not right all the time. Did you do that? I'm not right all the time. Now I want you to turn back to your neighbor and say, you're not right all the time. Okay, we've established that now, I think. I know my wife really liked to hear that. I'm not right all the time. Because I'm not. Oh, okay. I'll let you guys settle that after the service. But Paul's point is simply this, is that none of us are right, and compared to the righteous character of God, our rightness is very wrong. And the evidence of that character compared to God's perfect righteousness is very obvious in our lives. You may think you do good things. You may think you do right things. But you're not consistently good. You're not consistently right. The fact is, there is sin in your life. And there is a dark side in your life. And that's the character of sin that Paul is talking about. But Paul goes on to talk about the conduct of sin. In verses 13 through 17, he says this, Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their, son, uh, their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. Boy, isn't that true? The one thing that so many people seek today in the world is peace. And yet the Bible says when you're left in your brokenness of your sin, you'll never find true peace. But listen to the conduct of sin that Paul talks about here. He says he uses the, the, the organs associated with speech. He talks about the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth. Why? Because the speech, how you talk, gives away the darkness that is lurking in your heart. Jesus himself told us. He said, from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual morality, theft, lying, and slander. When you talk, it reveals what's going on in your heart. You ever been to the doctor? I know I'm picking on doctor. I'm not picking on you, Brett, today at all. You ever been to the doctor and he says, open up your mouth. Not long ago I was and open up your mouth and he looked down your throat. Why do they do that? Because they want to look down your throat and diagnose your health. In a very real sense, God is saying in his verse, open up your mouth. Let's look down your throat. Let's see what you've been saying lately. It will reveal what's going on inside of your heart. I love the Living Bible translation of verse 13. It is very graphic in what it says and jolting in its words. Their talk is foul and filthy like the stench from an open grave. 
Their tongues are loaded with lies. And everything they say has the sting of poison and of deadly snakes. Wow. It's pretty obvious what he's saying here, isn't it? He's saying that there is poison in our speech when we talk to one another and we have the ability to, to build people up or to tear people down. James says in the book of James, in James chapter 3, verse 8, he says, no one can tame the tongue. He goes on to say this, that the tongue is like a spark that can ignite a whole forest on fire. I know this about you that written on the hard drive of your memories are words that people have told you and you still feel the sting of their poison. It may have been 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 50 years ago, but that poison is still there. And you remember those words as though they said them yesterday. Our words reveal the darkness in our hearts. And the only way we can find healing is through Jesus Christ. The only way we can find the ability to overcome is through Jesus Christ. And so Paul says the conduct of your life is revealed by how you speak. I want to challenge you. Just listen to what you say throughout a day, your conversations, both private and public, and see if they don't reveal what your heart is really like, what's lurking in your heart. But Paul's not finished. He goes on to say, he says this, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. If I didn't know any different, I would not believe that I'm reading words that were written 2,000 years ago. I would think that I'm reading words that are written on the media of the evening, of the, of the evening news. We're seeing this happen all the time. Listen to the graphic words. It's like he's describing a crime scene that we're seeing unfolding on TV. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. We're seeing that on the news all the time, aren't we? So Paul says, the fact is, the dark side of humanity has not improved. And everybody tells you the world's getting better and better. They're losing their mind more and more. The fact is, if the world were so good, if people were so good, then why is the world so bad? But Paul is not finished. And God is not finished with us either. He talks about both the cause and the consequence of our sin. Let's just kind of tap into the cause of our sin found in the very part, first part of chapter, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When there is no fear of God, there is no fear of the consequences of the things we do wrong. And when there is no fear of God, chaos ensues and corrupts the entire society. We're seeing it happen today. There is no fear of God in our world. And when there is no fear of God, there is no mindfulness of God. You see, it's only when you know God that you understand your purpose and why you're here and the meaning of life. And when you exit God from your life, you'll never understand why you're here. Life becomes meaningless, becomes chaotic. So therefore, when there's no fear of God, they don't live as though God really exists. Isn't it kind of funny 
how you've done things wrong in your life, I've done things wrong in my life, that maybe 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, and the further you are away from those things you've done wrong, the less you worry about the consequences of them. Interesting how our memories tend to forget. And yet God says, I know every single sin that a man who's rejected me and forgets me has committed. Whether it's 10 years ago or 50 years ago, I will not forget. Recently I had a conversation with a man, an older man, and we were talking about the jolting speed with which our world has changed so swiftly in the last few years. And I was very interested to hear what he had to say in particular because I know this about him. He is committed to not believing in Christ. He wants nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the Bible. And so I was very interested to hear what he had to say as he watches the world unfold in chaos. And very jokingly, with a smile on his face, he said, you know, John, he said, the nice thing about getting old, he says, it won't last very long. And then it's all over with. And I thought, wow, how sad. He believes that when his heart stops beating, his life is over, that he'll go into nothingness. Like blowing the candle out. Nothing. But he doesn't stop to realize that he's accountable to the one who made him in whose image he was made. And he'll have to give an account before God for his life. And I thought, Lord, I pray for this man. I pray that he would come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and put his trust in Christ because that is his only hope. You see, if your hope is the belief that somehow when you die, it's all over with and nothing will ever matter anymore, you are, in a you are being deceived. You are living in a lie. The fact is you were meant to live for eternity and your soul will continue to live beyond this life. You know it. Do you know how I know it? The Bible says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God has placed eternity within us, but we do not understand it. Meaning simply this, that we have this innate awareness that there is such a thing as eternity, but we can't wrap our minds around it. God has made you to live for eternity. And you'll go on living beyond this life. The question is this, where will you go on living? And the choice is yours. And God says that when you're left in the mire and the darkness of your sin and you reject me, you have no other choice but to choose eternal separation from me. Don't ever let anybody tell you that God sends someone to hell. God does not send anyone to hell. God does not want anyone to go to hell. We just read that this morning. Rather, people choose to go to hell because they reject the only alternative to heaven, and that is hell. God says you're lost in your sin, and there is no fear of me before you. But Paul goes on to say this, and he's connecting the law and how this all fits in. Now we know there's the Jewish law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, but Paul also told us that there is also a law that is written on the Gentiles' conscience and their minds. We know right from wrong. We know good and bad. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. 
And so Paul says this, the reason that God gave the law, and this is a message that I wish so many people would hear today, the reason God gave us the law was not to keep the law and somehow be good enough to arrive in heaven. The point of the law is that you could never keep the law. The point of the law was never to redeem you, but rather to reveal you, to reveal the sin in your life. Let me ask you, how many of you have kept all the ten, all ten Commandments? Okay, how many of you kept nine of the Ten Commandments? Okay, eight of the Ten Commandments. Seven? Oh, there's seven. The point is this, is that none of us have been able to keep all Ten Commandments. In fact, we've broken a number of them multiple times, haven't we? And yet James tells us this in James chapter 2, verse 9, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he, is, he has become guilty of all. You see, no matter how good you are in keeping God's law, it only takes one infraction to break the whole law. It only takes one leak to sink a boat. It only takes one pen to pop a balloon. Just one is enough to damn our souls away from God and breaking the law. Just one. And the point of the law was never to save us in the first place, but to reveal our true condition. When the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, they said something absolutely remarkable. They came to Moses after God had given the, the law through Moses. They said to Moses, we'll do it. We'll keep the law. You got it. They had no idea what they were talking about. What happened right after that? Well, they had a party afterwards and they danced around naked and they worshipped an idol. That's what happened. Why? Because they couldn't keep the law. The law was never intended to be kept in order to get us to heaven but rather to expose our sins to reveal what we're really like. Martin Luther said it well. He said the principal point of the law is not to make men better but to make men worse. That is to say it shows them their sin. That by the knowledge thereof, they may be humbled, terrified, broken, and bruised. And by this means, uh, by this, and by this means, driven to seek grace, and so to come to that blessed seed, Jesus Christ. Well, he's right, isn't he? I wish so many people would hear and understand. There are some people that think, you know, I have to worship on Sunday or God's going to be upset with me. There are some people that say, I have to worship, worship on Shabbat, the Sabbath on Saturday, or I'm breaking God's law. Don't you realize God gave you the law to reveal your sin? It could never save you. And if you read carefully in the Word, you'll find very quickly that the Shabbat, which means rest, was never intended to be a day. It was merely a shadow of the reality to come. The true rest that we long for is not a day, but a person. And so the Bible in Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is our rest. That when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have rest seven days of the week, 7, 24, 7, 365. Jesus is our rest. He is the only one who fulfilled the law. Jesus said in John, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, I didn't come to break the law, but to fulfill the law. And so the Bible teaches this. 
that Jesus is your righteousness. That he is the one who allows you to have a right standing before God the Father. Not keeping the law, not keeping a day, not observing a diet, but rather placing your trust in Jesus Christ who fulfilled it all. Only through Christ can we know forgiveness. Only through Christ can we know healing. Only through Christ can we know eternal life. And only through Christ can we know peace that our hearts long for. You see, I suspect that some of you this morning may have come to church and, and you're resisting going to the doctor. And you're saying, you know, there's something wrong inside of me, but hey, you know what, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to go on about my day. And every day you wake up, you're reminded there is something terribly wrong. But you don't want to go to the doctor because you're afraid the doctor's going to give you bad news. Some people don't want to go to church because they don't want to hear bad news. But you have to hear the bad news to understand the good news. You can understand your need for Christ until you understand how lost you really are without him. You see, God gives us bad news. And he's like going to a doctor who says, I'm going to be honest with you. How many of you want to go to a doctor that says, you know what, you're dying from cancer, but they don't want you to know it. They're going to gloss over it and say, you know what, you're just fine. Take two aspirin, go home. Everything will be fine. Nobody wants a doctor like that, do they? We want a doctor who's going to be honest with us. Why? Because it, you can only be healed in as far as you're willing to be honest. And so God says you can only be healed in your life insofar as you're willing to be honest and be humble before me and recognize your need for the great physician to heal you. Can I ask you a question this morning? God never tells us bad news but without giving us the good news as well. You're not hopeless. There is hope in Christ. But can I ask you a very personal question? I'm speaking directly to you. Has there been a time in your life, a moment, in the raw honesty of your own heart before God, where you've come before him and said, God, I'm a sinner. I've blown it. And no amount of good I could ever do would be good enough to earn your acceptance. You know the things in your life. God doesn't want you to live in the guilt and the shame of those things anymore. He wants you to know his forgiveness. He wants you to know his peace. He wants you to know his healing. But you cannot know that until you're willing to be honest with God first. That's why Jesus Christ came, because you need a Savior. You don't need a mathematician or an economist or a politician. Lord knows we don't need more politicians. But you need a Savior. And that's why Christ came. And the fact is you're going to live from this day forward, whether this be your last day on earth or not, you're going to live from this day forward for eternity. And you must choose. Where will you spend eternity? In heaven that God is offering through His grace and His forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ, or in hell, a choice that you would make in rejecting God's free offer of forgiveness. The choice is yours. Will you pray with me this morning?
Will you pray with me to this end? Some of you have never perhaps trusted Christ at all in your life. And I'm going to ask you, would you do that right now? Would you humble yourself, turn to him, and be honest about the dark side that is inside of you and recognize you need God's healing and God's forgiveness? Would you come to Christ this morning? Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. I pray, Father, that you would break the veil of denial that so many in this world live with on a daily basis. That you would shatter the lies and the self-deception of a security that is not real. That you'd expose the dark side of our sin, that we would take it seriously and recognize our need for your healing grace. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Would you come with me before God's throne of grace? In your heart, in your soul, would you say, Lord Jesus, I cannot deny that your word is true. I know there is a dark side called sin, the power, the domination, a fundamentally evil thing inside of me called sin. And I agree with the Apostle Paul, there is no good thing that dwells within me, that is my flesh. And I turn to you right now, Lord Jesus, and I ask you for your forgiveness. I ask you for your healing, O great physician. And I ask you to be my Savior. Lord, would you come into my life right now? I turn it all over to you. I surrender it to you alone. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to fill me with your life, your hope, your love, and your forgiveness. Help me walk in a new life that is no longer dominated by the power of sin, but instead free. So that I can say with John, who said, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So that we could say with the Apostle Paul, We are more than overcomers in Christ. And we can say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to walk in your truth, in your spirit, Lord Jesus. Help us to be honest first. Humble ourselves, turn from our sins, and turn to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the finished work of the cross. Giving us a righteousness that is not our own. And a forgiveness that can only come from you. Thank you, Jesus. In your strong name we pray.